We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, through the songs and hymns we've sung, how many of you noticed one theme, one particular word? What was it? And if you looked at the title of the sermon, Hope, Hope. did you hear that coming through? Uh, all the songs and hymns, there are somewhere, at least in each of the hymns and songs, there is the word hope. Well, in the 1950s, uh, Dr. Kurt Richter of Harvest University conducted an experiment with rats. A lot of experiments are conducted with rats. And um, he and his uh, researchers placed rats in a pool of water to test how long they could tread water. And they found that on average, they would give up, sink, and drown after about 15 minutes. So what these researchers did is right before the rats were about to give up from exhaustion, they plucked them out of the water, they dried them off, and they gave them a little rest. And then they put them back in the water again. How long do you think they lasted that second round? Not 15 minutes, not an hour, not two hours, 60 hours, 60 hours. Friends, what is the lesson from that experiment with rats? What does it illustrate? It illustrates the difference that hope makes. With no hope of rescue, those rats did not last very long in the water. But with the memory, even in their little rats' brains, that if I hang on long enough, I'm going to get rescued, they were able to endure for an incredibly long amount of time. The power of hope. I might just say that as Christians, we have an eternal hope. There's so many suicides in our day. How do you get to that place where you take your own life? It must be because there's no hope. But you know, the Bible says all the suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. A Christian should never take his or her life because no matter how bad it gets in this life, there's a life to come that brings unspeakable joy. But why do I start with that illustration? Because we're coming to the book of First Chronicles this morning, and we're going to see that hope plays a very important part for the restored community of Israel. Those of you who are here on a regular basis know I'm trying to give one sermon for each book of the Bible. So it's definitely an overview approach to the Bible. And we come this morning to First Chronicles. Now, if you have read through First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles, you'll be aware that there's a lot of repetition. It's sort of like reading through the, the Synoptic Gospels, right? You read through Matthew, and then I remember 53 years ago, doing it for the first time as a new believer. I read through Matthew, and then I read Mark. For the, oh, there's a lot of stories in Mark that were in Matthew. And then I read Luke, and there's a lot of stories in Luke that are in Mark and, and, and Matthew. A lot of stories, a lot of miracles, a lot of teaching repeats. And that's the case with First Chronicles and Second Chronicles. First Chronicles repeats a lot of what is in Second Samuel which takes us from the death of Saul to the end of David's life. It's all about David. And First Chronicles, as we'll see, has a lot about David. Second Chronicles tends to parallel the books of Kings, which we saw last week, all about the kings of Israel and Judah. But between Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, there are distinct differences. 
you see there are things omitted from Chronicles that are contained in Samuel and Kings. And there are things added in the books of Chronicles that are not found in Samuel and Kings. And these omissions and additions are intentional. They have everything to do with the purpose for which the first and second Chronicles were written. You see, the situation is this. Judah, the southern kingdom, has been restored to the land after its 70-year exile in Babylon. Now they're back in the land. Apparently, the temple has been rebuilt, but the, the wall has not been rebuilt, and they're trying to get it together as a restored community. Now, they have a painful memory of how, as a nation, they had fallen into idolatry again and again until God to the got to the point where he sent them off into exile, into captivity. Now they are back in the land, and they need encouragement and hope for the future, as well as warning not to repeat the sins and failures of the past. So what the writer of 1 Chronicles does is he reminds the reunited people of God of the highlights of their past, the glories of David and Solomon's reign, without focusing on the negatives. And he wants to impress upon them also the central importance of proper worship, which for them was in the context of the temple. Now, what we'll see next week, God willing, the message of Second Chronicles rehearses the kingships in Judah, the southern kingdom, to show that when Judah and its kings obeyed God, they were blessed. When they disobeyed God, well, well, when they obeyed God, they were blessed. And when they sinned and repented, they were blessed. And when they disobeyed God, they were punished. That's Second Chronicles, but that's not our focus this morning. But all of this is to encourage them, now that they're restored as a covenant community, to encourage them not to fall into the patterns of the past, not to repeat the failures that led them into exile. Albert Barnes, the commentator, says the book of Chronicles, and originally it was one book, bridged over, so to speak, the gulf which separated the nation after and the nation before the captivity. It must have helped greatly to restore the national life, to revive hope and encourage high aspirations by showing to the nation that its fate, with its own, that its fate was in its own hands and that religious faithfulness would be certain to secure the divine blessing. In other words, here you are back in the land, and you get to make a fresh start. This time, do it right, and don't mess up like your forefathers did. So I've come up with a purpose statement from for First Chronicles, and it is this. The author wants to encourage and give hope to, to the restored community of Israel that if they appreciate their rich history and focus on the glory days of David and Solomon and believe God's covenant promises to David, and if they see the central importance of worshiping God in the way he wants, they can be blessed moving forward. Now, before we get to the content of 1 Chronicles, let me just share with you some technical information. First and Second Chronicles originally was contained in, as one book in the Hebrew canon under the title, The Words of the Days or Events of Past Time. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, divided the book of Chronicles into two parts and gave it the title in Greek, Paralepomenen, which means things omitted, which focused on the things that um, 
the events that were added in Chronicles, which were left out of the parallel accounts in Samuel and Kings. Now, Jerome, when he translated the Bible into Latin, labeled the books Chronicon Totius Divine Historion, in other words, a chronicle of the whole of sacred history. And that's where we get in English the Chronicles, okay? Originally one book, but divided into two. It's generally believed that the contents of the two books are the product of Ezra's hand, Ezra the scribe. Uh, there's a similarity in style between Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah. And if you look for a moment at the very end of Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles, um, and that would be um, chapter 36, verse 22, and, and notice how that ends and Ezra begins. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Now, notice how Ezra begins. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word, it's the same thing. So we're not sure, scholars are not sure, but think that maybe Ezra the scribe wrote First and Second Chronicles. Now, it has been said that um, the accounts of Samuel and Kings are political in their focus, whereas Chronicles are spiritual in emphasis. And again, because the aim of Chronicles is to warn the people not to repeat the sins of the past, and encourage them that if they are faithful to the proper worship of God, which they had not been, that God would bless them. So the theme of First Chronicles is hope, hope and encouragement for the people restored to their land. First of all, hope from Israel's past, the genealogies of chapters 1 to 9. And we're going to spend a very little time there because genealogies can really bog you down and they're very complex. But basically, God wants to encourage Israel restored to their land concerning their, their history. And so these genealogies are very selective. The first genealogy goes all the way back to Adam, shows that God, showing that God's dealings with Israel have worldwide implications. The, the one and only Savior is going to come from Israel. And then there's a genealogy of Abraham. Why? Because through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in these selective genealogies, there's a focus on Judah. Why? Because out of Judah would come David. And there's a focus on David's line. Why? Because from David would come the king that would sit on a throne everlastingly. And there's also much attention in the genealogies given to the tribe of Levi and Aaron and Aaron's three sons, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. Why? Because you'll see in First Chronicles a lot of focus on temple worship. In other words, the restored Jews need to get temple worship right. And so... There's hope from Israel's past, the genealogies, but then we spend more time on hope from the heritage of David. What we're going to see in First Chronicles is a focus on the positives of David's life and reign and absence of the negatives. When you compare Samuel and Kings and First Chronicles, 
Chronicles has no mention of David's sin of adultery with Bathsheba, murder of Uriah. There's no mention of the rebellion of Absalom. There's no mention of how on his death, on David's deathbed, his son Adonijah tried to take over the kingdom. All of those negatives are left out. Now, we ask, why is that? Is it dishonest history? I think the answer is no. The purpose is to show the reconstituted nation that despite the sins of the past, despite the grievous sins of even their greatest king, David, God is still with them. God still promises to fulfill his, his covenant with David that someone will sit on his throne forever. And so let's note some of the positives about David that are given here in Chronicles. First of all, it talks about David becoming king in chapters 10 to 12. It's interesting that 1 Samuel goes into a lot of detail about Saul. Saul, Saul who was at first obedient to God, but then he soon uh, disobeyed God. The kingdom was ripped away from him. He spent the rest of his life jealously pursuing David and trying to kill him. All those nasty things about Saul. Well, guess what? In Chronicles, there's very little about Saul. In fact, all that we're told about Saul is the account of his death. And so we read at the end of chapter 10, So Saul died for his trespass, which he committed against the Lord, because of the word of the Lord, which he did not keep, and also because he asked counsel of a medium, making inquiry of it, and did not inquire of the Lord. Therefore he killed him and turned the kingdom to David, the son of Jesse. I think Saul is only mentioned to contrast him to David. You see, Saul disobeyed the word of the Lord. Saul did not inquire of the Lord. David did. So the writer's not concerned about Saul and that failed kingship. He really wants to focus on David and the positives of David's reign. Why? Because hope is going to come through David. Um, David is made king by a unified people. That's significant in chapter 11. We read this. As he's talking up David, then all Israel gathered to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. In times past, even when Saul was king, you were the one who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord your God said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel, and you shall be prince over my people Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and David made a covenant with them in Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel, according to the word of the Lord through Samuel. Then David and all Israel went to Jerusalem, that is Jebus, and the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, were there. You see the fact that all Israel was united behind David. If we come to chapter 12, maybe I'll spare reading the passages. It's always hard to know how much should I read and not read. I don't want to weary you, but I want to give you a sense of the flow. But in chapter 12, uh, the writer indicates that even before David became king, he drew a large following to himself. And it goes tribe by tribe to say how they were gathering behind David. I'll just read a few verses. Verse 1, now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul, uh, the son um, of Kish. Verse 8 says, From the Gadites there came over to David in the stronghold in the wilderness, mighty men of valor. Verse 16, Then some of the sons of Benjamin and Judah came to the stronghold of David. Verse 22, For by 
Day by day, men came to David to help him until there was a great army like the army of God. Verse 38 caps it off by saying, All these, being men of war who could draw up in battle formation, came to Hebron with a perfect heart to make David king over all Israel. And all the rest of Israel were of one mind to make David king. Brothers and sisters, here's the point. David united all Israel. In fact, the, the phrase, all Israel, shows up 47 times in First and Second Chronicles. The writer's trying to make a point. He's making a point. He's taking them back to when Israel was united before the division. And they were united around David. Because now that they're back in the land, he's calling them to be united in David. United in the promises God made to David. The northern kingdom is hardly mentioned. The prophets of the northern kingdom, Elijah and Elisha, are hardly mentioned. Elisha's not mentioned at all. Elijah's only mentioned once. We're not dealing with the northern kingdom. We're not dealing with the divided kingdom. David united the people of Israel as you need to be united now in David now that you're back in the land. David then brings the ark to Jerusalem. And here, again, notice all Israel uniting behind David. Chapter 13, then David consulted with the, the captains of the thousands and the hundreds, even with every leader. David said to all the assembly of Israel, if it seems good to you and if it is from the Lord our God, let us send everywhere to our kinsmen who remain in all the land of Israel, also to the priests and Levites who are with them in their cities, their pasture lands, that they may meet with us. And let us bring back the ark of our God to us, for we did not seek it in the days of Saul. Then all the assembly said that they would do so, for the thing was right in the eyes of all the people. So David assembled all Israel together. You're getting the emphasis from Shehor of Egypt, the Shehor of Egypt, even to the entrance of Hamath to bring the Ark of God from Kiriath-Jerim. David and all Israel went up to Baalah, that is, to Kiriath-Jerim. You get the point. They're going to bring back the Ark, and all Israel is united around David. That's the point he's making. Just like they were united around David then as the reconstituted community back in the land, you need to be one united people following David. Now, something interesting happened at that time when they were bringing the ark back to Jerusalem. They had it on a cart. And at one point, many of you know the story, it's one of those puzzling stories in, in a way, the, ark, ark, the uh, cart began to tip and to keep the ark from falling, a man by the name of Uzzah reached out and touched the ark. And God struck him dead on the spot. 13, 9, and 10 says, When they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, Uzzah put out his hand to hold the ark because the oxen nearly upset it. The anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, so he struck him down because he put out his hand to the ark, and he died there before God. And if you're reading that, you're saying, Whoa! Why did God do that? In fact, even David was angry and fearful of the Lord. And they, instead of bringing the ark to Jerusalem, they kept it at the home of Obed-Edom. Even David was afraid of God. But why did the Lord do that? We have the answer two chapters later. When they finally did bring the ark from the house of Obed-Edom into Jerusalem, listen to these words, 1 Chronicles 
15. Now David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Now listen, then David said, no one is to carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. God had said that only the Levites were to carry the ark, and they were to carry the ark on two poles, but they were carrying the ark on a cart. This fits with the message of First Chronicles. When you, as the people of God, obey God, he will bless you. But if you disobey God, there will be punishment. And David learned from that experience. And he said, we're going to do it right this time. The Levites are going to carry the ark with poles, and we will have the blessing of God. David also appoints singers and musicians to praise the Lord skillfully. Uh, again, this is all about David. Chapter 15, 16, and 17. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments of music, harps, lyres, loud-sounding cymbals, to raise sounds of joy. So the Levites appointed certain men to do that. Verse 22. Tenaya, chief of the Levites, was in charge of the singing. He gave instruction in singing because he was skillful. One of the other things David did is he appointed singers and musicians to praise the Lord skillfully. And again, this is a message for the restored people. If you are to know the blessing of God, you need to be a people who are filled with praise to the Lord. In the past, you've been idolaters, you've worshipped false gods. God is a God worthy to be praised, and you need to praise him. And there's even a sample of Psalm 105 given in chapter 16, which I won't take the time to read. The chronicler also rehearses the covenant made with David. Remember, as it says in 2 Samuel 7, David wanted to build a house for God. And he expresses that to Nathan the prophet. At first, Nathan affirms him. That's a good idea, David. But then the word of the Lord comes to Nathan, which he brings to David, that, David, you're not to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And so, First Chronicles 17, 10, Moreover, I tell you that the Lord, Nathan the prophet speaking, will build a house for you when your days are fulfilled that you must go to be with your fathers that I will set up one of your descendants after you who will be one of your, be of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build for me a house and I will establish his throne forever. David wants to build a house for God. God says, no. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to give you a kingdom that will never end. One of your sons, one of your descendants will sit on your throne, and that kingdom will never end. There's also profuse accounts of David's military victories uh, in chapter 18. I'll just give you a sample. It rehearses so many military victories. Verse 1, now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. Um, Verse 2, he defeated Moab, and the Moabites became servants to David. Verse 3, David also defeated Hadadezer, king of Zobah. Um, and it goes on, David's victories, one after another. Now, here's something that is very noteworthy. Listen to chapter 20 with some attentiveness, because I think you're going to know what might be coming. 
chapter 20 begins with, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that Joab led out the army and ravaged the land of the sons of Ammon and came and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now, if you remember the story from 2 Samuel, you're thinking, uh-oh, I remember what happened when David, while the kings are going out to war, David decided to stay home. You remember what follows? That's when he saw Bathsheba bathing. It led to his grievous sin of adultery and murder. But that's not how the chronicler reports it. And this is noteworthy. You're ready to hear, uh-oh, this is where David gets into trouble. But that's not what it says. It says, you know, that um, David stayed at Jerusalem and Joab struck Rabbah and overthrew it. David took the crown of their king from his head and he found it to weigh a talent of gold and there was a precious stone on it and it was placed on David's head and he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. Wait, what about Bathsheba? What about not here? Because it's not his purpose. He wants to focus on the glories and the victories of David to remind them that this is where you need to be as a restored people. So it is intentional that the writer of Chronicles passes over almost all of the sins of David. The only one mentioned is David's prideful um, numbering of the people in chapter 21. The sins of Solomon are not rehearsed. Why? This is to say to the people returned from exile, that despite all the sins and faults of the kings in David's line, beginning with David himself, God's promise will still come to pass of a future king. And he wants them to focus not on the sins and failures of David and Judah, but on their virtues. And he wants them to imitate that. So hope for the future is there if you remember and walk in the way of the virtues of David and you believe the promises made to David by the Lord. But now hope from faithful worship. First Chronicles reiterates from 2 Samuel that David desired to build the temple, but he was told that he was not the man to do that, literally because you have shed much blood and have waged great wars. Even though it was God who designed that for David, it was God who enabled David to have those military victories. They were not sinful, but God did not want a man of war to build his house. Rather, he says, behold, a son will be born to you who shall be a man of rest. He shall build a house for my name. But the focus here in First Chronicles is on all the preparation that David did for the temple. He was not permitted to build it, but oh, did he go to great lengths to prepare for the building of the temple. He gathered materials. Listen to this, just a few verses from 1 Chronicles 22, 14 to 16. Listen to all that David prepared for the temple. Now behold, with great pains, I have prepared for the house of the Lord a hundred thousand talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weight, for they are in great quantity. Also timber and stone I have prepared, and you may add to them. Moreover, there are many workmen with you, stone cutters and masons of stone and carpenters, and all men who are skillful in every kind of work, of the gold, the silver, and the bronze, and the iron. There is no limit. Arise and work, and may the Lord be with you. David made 
vast preparation in terms of materials. It goes on in chapter 23 to talk about how he organized the Levites for the care of the temple. See, their job was changing. Previously, they had uh, the care of the tabernacle, which was a, a mobile unit. Now it was going to be a permanent fixture. So the jobs of the Levites were changing. And David prescribes what the Levites are to do in this new temple. He gives assignments to the sons of Levi, Gershon, Merari, and Kohath, who each had you know, different assignments regarding the tabernacle. Chapter 25 talks about how David commissioned musicians to give vocal and instrumental praise uh, to the Lord. Um, in this temple that was to be built. Chapter 26 talks about the organization of gatekeepers and, and treasures in the house of the Lord. Um, here's the point. To this restored people, he's saying, if you are going to be blessed going forward, you've got to get temple worship right. The, the temple and the worship in the temple is a major theme in First Chronicles. Why? because they had really messed up worship before. They had worshiped idols. They were taken into captivity. He's saying, if you're going to be blessed now as a reconstituted community, you got to get temple worship right. Okay? That's the theme. And it ends, the book of First Chronicles ends in a, in a glorious way as David comes to die. Now, in 1 Kings, when we have the account of David's death, it's in the midst of a lot of drama. His son Adonijah is, is trying to take over the throne, and Bathsheba has to come and urge him to make Solomon king. And David tells Solomon, look, when you become a king, you need to deal with Shimei, who cursed me, and you need to deal with Joab, who shed innocent blood. And, and there's a lot of the the bad memories, painful experiences of David's life that are rehearsed, but not here. Let me just give you some of the portions of how the author of Chronicles portrays the end of David's life. Chapter 28, it ends with chapter 29, so we're almost done here with the exposition. Chapter 28 now David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the princes of the tribes and the commanders of the divisions that served the king and the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds and the overseers of all the property and livestock belonging to the king and his sons with the officials and the mighty men, even all the valiant men. There's that picture of, of unity. And he addresses um, all Israel he addresses Solomon in verses 9 and 10. As for you, my son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts, understands every intent of the thoughts. If you seek him, he will let you find him. If you forsake him, he will reject you forever. Consider now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be courageous and act. He gives instructions for the house to be built as God has given it to him. Um, that would be in um, verses 19 and 20. And then listen to this, the final chapter, listen to this prayer of David, so reflective of his virtuous heart. You see, he, the writer doesn't want the, the people to remember the sins of David, but to remember the virtues of David so that they would imitate those. Listen to this language very similar to so many of David's psalms. 
29.10 and following. So David blessed the Lord in the sight of all the assembly. And David said, Blessed are you, O Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. And he goes on and on with praise. The conclusion, verses 21 and 22, on the, on the next day, they made sacrifices to the Lord and offered burnt offerings to the Lord, a thousand bulls, a thousand rams, a thousand lambs, and their drink offerings and sacrifice in abundance for all Israel. So they ate and drank that day before the Lord with great gladness. So, then the last verses, 28, Then he died in a ripe old age, full of days, riches, and honor, and his son Solomon reigned in his place. And you say, the end. And they all lived happily ever after. It's kind of like a, a fairy tale, in a sense, that it's a real focus on the positives. And so, in looking back on the book, let me repeat the purpose the southern kingdom has returned from its 70-year exile in Babylon. The temple has been rebuilt, but not yet the wall, and they're facing a future as a reconstituted nation. And the author of this book of 1 Chronicles wants to encourage them and inspire them with the facts concerning the founding of their nation and the high points of its history. 1 Chronicles focuses on their genealogy, the reign of David, the glorious reign of David, and the temple worship. Listen to what some commentators say. An Old Testament scholar, Gleason Archer, writes, the purpose of these two volumes is to review the history of Israel from the dawn of the human race to the Babylonian captivity and Cyrus's edict of restoration. The review is composed with a very definite purpose in mind, to give to the Jews of the Second Commonwealth the true spiritual foundations of their theocracy as the covenant people of Jehovah. The historian's purpose is to show how the true glory of the Hebrew nation was found in its covenant relationship to God, as safeguarded by the prescribed forms of worship in the temple and administered by the divinely ordained priesthood under the protection of the divinely authorized dynasty of David. Always the emphasis is upon that which is sound and valid in Israel's past as furnishing a reliable basis for the task of reconstruction which lay ahead. Merrill Unger notes that First and Second Chronicles is not a mere supplement to the parallel books of Samuel and Kings, but emphasizes only those aspects of history that illustrate the observance of the priestly laws of Moses as a way to spiritual prosperity in Israel. And Albert Barnes says, it was the strong conviction of the writer that the whole future prosperity of his countrymen was bound up with the preservation of the temple service, with the proper maintenance of the priests and Levites, the regular establishment of the courses, and the rightful distribution of the several ministrations of the temple among the Levitical families. So, that's the thrust of the book of First Chronicles. Now, for remaining minutes, I want to ask, what can we take away from that for ourselves? Well, I think there are three things. First thing we see is that God is faithful to his promises. 
despite the sins of David and Solomon, and in other places they are rehearsed in gory detail, God will still make good on his covenant promises. What the writer wants the restored people to know is despite all those sins of the past, God's promise to sit someone on David's throne who would reign forever is still in force. Just like God will eventually raise up a seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. God will eventually bless all the families of the earth through Abraham. God will bring a descendant of David to the throne and he will reign forever. So we see a strong note of God's faithfulness to his promises. Secondly, we should be encouraged and hopeful from our own heritage. You see, the Jews coming out of the exile needed encouragement of their heritage, where they had come from, and their future as the covenant people of God. As we get into Ezra and Nehemiah, we're going to see that they're going to face challenges. They're going to face opposition as they come back into the land. They need to know who they are. And they need to know the path of blessing for them. And so the writer reminds them of their glorious heritage. They are part of David. And all the promises that God made to David, all the positive things that are true were true of David. You need to replicate those things. And so I say to us, we have enemies, we have opposition, and we need to remind ourselves of our heritage as well. The positive things that are true of you. You have sins, you have failures, you have disappointments. But I want to rehearse with you briefly the things that are true of you despite your sins and failures, despite the sins and failures of, of Judah past, there were virtues and glories. And I want to remind you of what is true of you. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have been chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God chose you for nothing good in yourself. The encouragement of that is that nothing, because there was nothing good in you that caused him to choose you, there's nothing that you can do that can cause him to unchoose you. You're chosen by the Father from eternity past. You have been purchased by the life-giving death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, he did not die for people indiscriminately. He died for people particularly. As the songwriter says, your name was written on his hands. And you have been regenerated, believer. You have been supernaturally made alive from the spiritually dead by the enlivening power of the Holy Spirit. You know, no testimony is a dull testimony. Don't anyone ever say, I have a dull testimony. You may not have been in the dregs of sin, in the gutter because of drugs and alcohol, but every conversion, every testimony is a testimony to the supernatural invasion of your life by the Holy Spirit passing you from death to life. There is no dull testimony. It's all holy ground. The Spirit of God has regenerated you by a miracle of his grace. God's eye diffused a quickening ray. You woke. 
The dungeon flamed with light. Your chains fell off. Your heart was free. You rose, went forth, and followed him. You've been justified by faith. That means not only are you not guilty, but you are declared positively righteous with a righteousness not your own, but that which belongs to Jesus. As the hymn continues to say, no condemnation now you dread. Jesus and all in him is yours. You've been adopted into his family as a beloved son or daughter. Has your father or mother forsaken you? As Psalm 27 says, the Lord has taken you up. He's not ashamed to call you son or daughter. You're being sanctified by the work of the Spirit in you, by the means of grace. No, you are not what you want to be. You may not even be what you ought to be, but you're not what you once were because God by his spirit is at work in you, pressing you toward the image of Christ. He's changing you, and he won't stop doing that until you're perfected in glory. And that's your ultimate destiny, glory. Jesus said in Matthew 13 that his children will shine like the sun someday in the kingdom of his Father. That's your destiny, to be shining like the sun in the kingdom, in the consummate kingdom of your Father. And so, like they needed to be reminded of the glories of their heritage, we need to keep in mind who we are in Jesus Christ. But then a final application. What was the path forward for these Jews now back in the land? If they were not to lapse back into idolatry again, what was the path forward for blessing for them? Well, one of the main things is they needed to get their worship right. They needed to get temple worship right. You needed to have the right people, the Levites and the priests, in the right place, doing the right thing at the right time. You needed to get your worship right. And for them, it was temple worship. Now, brothers and sisters, I ask you, what is the new covenant counterpart to that temple worship? In other words, is there a new covenant temple? I think very clearly there is. 1 Corinthians 3.16, which I quote often, Paul says to the Corinthians, if anyone corrupts or destroys God's temple, God will destroy or corrupt him, for God's temple is holy, and that temple you, plural, are. What's he talking about? The church. You as a church, as a gathered church, are the temple of God. And Ephesians 2 makes it very clear what the new covenant temple of God is. It's not a physical building. But in Ephesians 2, 19 and following, he's talking to Gentile believers. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. The new covenant temple, brothers and sisters, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I say with confidence that if you, as a spiritual child of Abraham, are to have God's full blessing on you, you must be rightly connected to and related to the church.
What does that mean practically? Well, it means that you need to be a committed member of a local church. Under the oversight of shepherds, elders, overseers, and devoted to your brothers and sisters in that assembly. It means that you need to be committed to the gatherings of that local church. The gatherings for worship, for teaching, for preaching, for prayer, for the Lord's Supper, and fellowship. It means you need to be increasingly, we all need to be increasingly carrying out those one another duties, which really, it, it fleshes out what fellowship really is. All those one another's, loving one another, serving one another, showing hospitality to one another, accepting one another, exhorting one another, encouraging one another, not neglecting assembling together with one another. All those one another's we need to be growing in. As I say so often, it's not centrifugal force, but centripetal force getting us, moving us closer to one another. That needs to be our practice. It needs to be your practice if you are to know the full blessing of God on your life. It means that you should be using the spiritual gifts that God has given you for the edification of the body. First Peter 4.10, as each has received a gift, every one of you is gifted. We are a charismatic community in the best sense. And you need to find out what your gift is and be using it for the building up of the body. And perhaps you have more than one gift. Well, brothers and sisters, may the Lord help us in light of this message of First Chronicles to be reminded of God's faithfulness to his promises despite human failures, to be reminded of our rich heritage and glorious future in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater son of David. And may we be reminded of our responsibility to New Covenant temple worship, which is commitment to his church. And if you're not a believer, your great need, see, God says you're part of the world and you're part of Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of darkness. And your great need is to get out from the society of people who do not know and love God, the world, and get out of the devil's kingdom and into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus. And you do that by repenting of your sin, putting your faith squarely and solely in Jesus, and he will instantaneously transfer you from the world and from the kingdom of darkness and bring you into the kingdom of his beloved son. May God give you grace to do that this very day. Pray. Father, thank you that this message of old to your old covenant people restored to the land has great relevance for us. Help us to have ears to hear and believe and obey your word as it applies to us. 